Welcome back to Avis After Hours, a podcast focused on the intersection of innovation, finance, and community. Today, Jeff and I sit down with Tom Sidema and Neil Menard, partners at StepStone, a global private markets firm managing over $134 billion in assets. Tom serves as the firm's executive chairman, while Neil acts as the president of distribution. Individually, Tom and Neil have decades of experience in the investment industry, but alongside their work in private markets, the two are heavily involved in the Central Florida community. Tom and Neil, appreciate you guys being on here. This is at least pretty cool for us because he worked with both of you. I know you grew up playing hockey with my dad, so I, I definitely did. want to touch on that. Well, why don't we just start there then? I hear a ton of stories about how my father used to be quite the instigator and would start fights, take a step back, and let the bigger guys take over and handle that. Can you confirm that story? A hundred percent. Um he is very, very good with a stick. Um, uh, and I'm not talking about with that. the puck. Uh, <laughs> I'm talking about where he put his stick. Right. Um, so, and he was always surrounded by by bigger guys. So, um, it's uh, he was a smart man. So that's that's accurate. Though. It totally it's accurate. Good yeah, and how far question. back does that go? We're talking we were, middle school, high school, uh, whatever. Thirteen is eighth, seventh grade. Yeah. So, so I, I, this is all new to me. I had not. So Mark and I um, were counselors at Providence College hockey camp when Lou Lamorello, Mark's uncle was the coach you know lou is now the gm of uh, islanders the islanders and, and he's won stanley cups with the with the jersey new jersey devils he's you know i mean lou is a legend but um talk about a guy we were scared to death of both of us <laughs> and we both had to go in and ask him if we could do um leave camp because as counselors to go play summer hockey against each other and um i'm like you ask him he's like i'm not asking him you ask him i'm like he's your uncle dude i'm like come on <laughs> So we finally, some, you know, we, we mustered up the, the courage to go in and say, hey, uh, Lou, can we, um, can we have the night off so that we can go, you know, play summer hockey? And we got the lecture like, boys, you know, you're here to work, you know, you, you should have thought of that before you, you know, before you took the job. <laughs> and we're both like, oh, crap, he's not going to let us go. And he finally was like, all right, go. So we, we literally went, played summer hockey against each other and came back. Who won? Um, I don't remember, but, he, he, <laughs> but I'll bet he does. Yeah, uh, but I don't remember. I really, truly don't remember who won. But I, I remember, you know, going to the Smithfield Rink, which is probably 15 minutes from Providence College. Mm. Uh, played each other, went back. Where in Rhode Island were you from specifically? You like I, I grew up in a little, yeah, I grew up in a little town called Burville, Rhode Island, which is kind of in the northwest corner of the state. It's a little state, right? So did, did um, you hear that? It's kind of all rolled into one. You, you, you. Burville, Bar- Burville. Right. Right. Sorry, <laughs> ours yeah. aren't the strong suit of those. From no, Rhode no. <laughs> Yeah, so a little, little French-Canadian enclave in the, in the northwest corner of the state. And uh, my parents French-Canadian. My grandparents moved down from, from Canada, working at textile mills. And, and um, you know, we were this little, little town, this little public school, uh, but had our own rank, um, which was amazing, right? And, and this little you know, town that didn't have anything, right? We didn't have a McDonald's. We didn't have a Dunkin' Donuts. We didn't have anything. <clears throat> I, so I, then went, I went to boarding school. Um, so I left Rhode Island when, when your dad was at Hendricken. And... Um, it could because well it's a long story i won't go into it, but i went to boarding school and um and then i was working for sei investments in 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 the early 2000s like literally 2000 you know i was i was the wholesaler in florida and i i was had a list of advisors to call on and um and mark lamorello like <laughs> can't be so i picked up the phone and called him he it's back when his office was downtown Hey, Mar- you know, I was looking for Marco Lamorello and, you know, they screen and as I finally get to him and I'm like, hey, this is Neil Menard. Is this Mark Lamorello? And he's like, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> so he's like, come on in. So then we reconnected and, and I think it was 2000, actually, if, I, if I'm not mistaken. So I'm going to let each of you get into your backgrounds uh, shortly, but I want to start with uh, probably one of my favorite stories that involves all three of you um, about Jeff's time at CNL. So I don't know if this is going to get you in trouble or not, but I want to let you uh, tell the story. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure if either of you remember this at all or not, but it was actually a great story. And right when I started, this is always a little, this is always a little <laughs> scary. <laughs> it doesn't. You guys didn't do anything. Wrong. CNL, you guys were great. Everyone at CNL was great. It was probably first couple weeks on the job. Um, it was myself and my buddy Andrew Schiano, now at Starwood. Not sure if you remember him or not, but yeah. we were the two sales associates. There yeah, was this yeah. uh, marketing system online, this software we used, um, and you had to type in 
this little algorithm to make sure it came out correctly. I had a couple guys on the desk training me up on it, how to type it in. I thought I had it nailed down, you know, typed it in, pressed send, went to the bathroom, come back. The sales floor is lit up with everyone on the phone, emails going crazy. And I had no idea what was going on until I sat down and realized I accidentally sent a email blast to the whole database, 250,000 people across the country. Every advisor basically got invited to a happy hour in Las Vegas. So not only did they get invited, but they all thought we were flying them out to Vegas. There's guys in Georgia calling in and calling their wholesaler all excited, you know, like, oh, can't believe you invited me to this happy hour. Thanks so much. Uh, we actually ended up getting a, a lot of meetings out of it and we were able to resolve it. And But the rest of the day where y'all come in was everyone was just being so nice. And the culture there was, you know, telling me it was going to be okay. It wasn't the end of the world, even though it kind of was. Um, and then by the end of the day, you two come around and Neil was the one who he looks at me, looks at Schiano, and he looks at Schiano and says, you know, this is the point where you're teeing off. The guy in front of you shanks it into the woods, takes all the pressure off. <laughs> <laughs> and then that's how I started. And then I think you walked away after that. It was great. And everyone was cracking up. It's about right. And that really was what it felt like at the time. It's kind of a core memory I still have from my young career. Um, but I, I appreciated you guys in that moment. So Tom, why don't you uh, just tell us a little bit about yourself, your upbringing, your education, and yeah. what you got you to the point that you're at now. First of all, what a delight to be here. So thank you guys. We have just huge respect for your firm. And Mark is, uh, is way more than just being one of our partners. He's a thought leader. And, and uh, we, we, when we're going to roll out a new product, we couldn't imagine rolling out a new product without uh, sitting down. And we've done that with each of our products uh, and said, hey, you know, how do you think, how, you know, uh, so anyway, thank you for, for that. So my background, I grew up in, in, uh, a family, two parents. I had three uh, brothers. I have an identical twin brother, uh, which is sort of an interesting, um, sort of, uh, background yeah. and, uh, and, and some just awesome memories. And I grew up as my best friend probably still is, um, <clears throat> two older brothers. I grew up in the South side of Chicago. Uh, in an area that today you don't really want to drive through unless you have a, a you know, sort of a bulletproof vest probably, but right. uh, not a, a, a very safe neighborhood. But when I lived there, it was fantastic, sort of immigrant central where the, you know, all the different uh, ethnic groups uh, sort of lived adjacent to each other. And there was uh, no, it was just an awesome uh, place to uh, to grow up. Very, very uh, middle-class uh, kind of family. Um my parents had no financial means, but we didn't know we lacked nothing, you know, kind of thing. And I uh, went to mostly uh, faith-based schools. I'm a uh, faith-based guy. My family was was really deeply, deeply religious. Um, went to a, a small uh, Christian college in Northwest uh, Iowa in the, in the Midwest uh, area. And Met my wife there. She grew up in in New Jersey, sort of similar background. I'm Dutch, and there's a lot of Dutch um, uh, sort of history and legacy in this school and, and where I where I met. Went from there to graduate school at Indiana University and got an MBA there, and uh, got married right coming out of college. So I was one of those guys married at 22 years old and. Uh, when I look back, it's like, I can't, I just can't even imagine I got married, uh, that young and we ended up having kids, um, not, uh, planning. We just, it just kind of right. happened. Right. Um, it's, uh, but so we had kids right away, but, and then I, I started my career in Dallas, Texas. We sort of, um, said, if we're going to start a career and, um, and move anywhere, uh, where should we move? Cause we always thought we could move back to family, right. you know, once you had kids, but pretty difficult to have kids and then move away from every, everybody. So right. we, you know, we said, let's just on a flyer, let's go to Texas. And, you know, Dallas was rocking, mm -hmm. started, uh, my career in real estate, uh, banking and, uh, just thought it was 
I mean, I was loving every minute of it. Real estate, a lot of the community leaders of most cities in America have real estate backgrounds because they have a gift of deal making and vision and strategy. And, and um, I, so I was learning some of that and ended up uh, joining the real estate group and just learning underwriting. And to this day, I, you know, I'll pull over looking at uh, real estate on the side of the yep. road. My kid, when my kids were young, it's like, dad, please no more real estate. Can we just go <laughs> home or can we just go eat or whatever? But uh, so I, I, um, uh, we we lived in Dallas, Texas for a dozen years. Have three uh, children, who are all grown now. They're all born uh, there. Uh, I moved from I, I was I felt shackled by sort of a regulated industry uh, and moved to a less regulated industry, which was investment banking, and and moved to Charlotte uh, when we built a, a real estate related investment bank, and so I did that for sixteen years in Charlotte. Uh, just doing sort of IPOs and M&A yeah. and debt and equity capital raising and that sort of thing. Uh, through that, I uh, got to meet some folks here in Orlando uh, and then had uh, an opportunity to move here to uh, to lead a business and succeed a founder. Uh, yeah. And so I, I did that for a number of years. So we moved here um, in at the end of 2009 sort of tough time to lead a predominantly real estate oriented right. company um, and did that for a number of years before we've launched uh, what is now Stepstone Private Well. So Neil, we touched on your upbringing a little bit. Let's dive in a little bit more, but also when did you two meet? Uh, you and Tom, was that at CNL or was that prior to that? No. So we met before. I, I think I knew Tom for probably five years before I, I, I joined uh, him at, at CNL. Um, through through the business, right? IPA I mean, just, just through the like business, that. we'd be yeah. at a conference together. We've we're speaking at the same mm -hmm. time at conferences, and we'd run into each other and chat and get to know each other. And well, we said, you know, someday we have to figure out how to work together, and and uh, it it all came to uh, fruition over. Um, it's a pretty funny story. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Tom, Tom calls me. I so so back up a little bit. So I was yeah. I was living in D.C. Uh, in in Maryland in in Bethesda, just outside of D.C. and moved down here um, or back to Orlando okay. um, uh, with my family because just because we wanted to live here, I didn't, not because I had a job. And we really, really enjoyed just being in, in this area of Central Florida. So uh, I, I get a phone call one day. He goes, hey, um, I heard you moved back to Florida. I said, yeah, I moved into Winter Park. And, and uh, you know, he's like, so, you know, what are you doing? I told him what I was doing at the time. And he's like, well, let's have dinner. And I said, okay, let's have dinner. And, you know, so we, we go to, I don't remember the restaurant. Real. It was no, before it, real fish, it was a uh, ravenous pig. Ravenous pig. There you go. Yeah. So yeah. we, we, <laughs> we, we go in, I'm eating this guy, you know, uh, for, for dinner and, and we're going to talk about potentially working together. And, and he's the CEO of a big company in central Florida. And we sit down and we, we ordered drinks. I ordered wine and, and I think I, we ordered a bottle of wine and they brought wine glasses that were, like water goblets. I mean, they were like this big. And I, I just kind of looked at the waitress. I'm like, you must have better wine glasses. Right. There, Actually, right? The, the quote was, I'm sorry, do you have real wine glasses? <laughs> that sounds about right. So I started my interview for my new job. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I started like, laughing. It's like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> He's a little bit of a wine snob. It, it actually doesn't really matter how good the wine is, as long as it's in a big goblet. It's like, <laughs> I want a real glass. Right. So, uh, and so anyway, so so no, then then so that's then we started kind of our 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 career and partnership together there. I mean, Tom's been a friend, a mentor, a boss, and now a partner um, for I guess the last call it nine years. Um, crazy, yeah. it's been that long. Yeah. Holy cow! And. Um, and you know we we had a, a sh we had a shared vision, um, and we we had it in our previous employer, but uh, we couldn't really execute on it. But we had a shared vision, mm -hmm. um, which is was to build a an alternative investment platform from the investor backwards, right? So think about something that you know we would the the terms we use are kind of convenient, efficient, and transparent. Um, all all the things that previous products weren't. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. You know, <laughs> and um, so we really, really um, had this vision, really wanted to execute on it. And we, we realized the only way to execute on it is to go off and do it on our own, which was a little risky. 
I, I will jump in and say when we finally came to the decision that it's time for us to work together, um, he came over to the office. We sat in a conference room and we cut a deal over compensation, role, all that sort of thing in about 10 minutes. Really? Um, it was, you remember it was that? easy. Yeah, I do. No, no. Yeah, it, was, it was sort of like, hey, what do you think is fair? This is fair. Okay. How about this? Yeah. I mean, it was like, and largely because we had built um, a very, very high level of trust be between us. And it was, you know, we didn't have a, 60 page contract. It was sort of, you know, we were just trying to figure out what was the, what was the right answer for the other mm. uh, party, which is sort of a business principle that we've continued to operate with. Yeah. And Jeff, you've heard this before, right? And that the, the relationship transcends the transaction, right? Yep. The relationship yeah. is so much more important than the transaction. Yeah. So if you do what's right for the people, um, you know, things are going to go right for you in, in the long run. I love that. So before we dive into what you're doing now, uh, you said it was a bit risky. Both of us are entrepreneurs in, in you know, sort of differing uh, senses of the word. And both of us had a vision of where this business needed to go and where we felt like it was going to go. And we wanted to help accelerate the movement uh, in, in that direction. And there was a number of secular trends that we saw in the market back <laughs> 10 years ago and right. we, we still see them today and it's only accelerating, uh, t today. Um, so we, we, we got together and, and, uh, you know, when we launched the, the, the new business, I mean, we all were sort of kicking around a lot of different ideas and, and it was sort of like, there's only one, when you talk distribution in our business, there's, hundreds of people that are distribution professionals. There's only one that I'm going to ever partner with. It was a very short conversation. And, you know, Neil and I were going, yeah, we're in. Let's let's figure this out. Mm -hmm. So we have two other partners. Um, and, and what's unique about the four of us is, is that we all have distinct skill sets. Right. Which I which I think is is rare. And, and you know, when you have, when you bring four people together. So, so, you know, I do, I, you know, I've been in distribution my whole life, my whole career, like literally from the day I stepped out of school, not on purpose, but that's, so was that your first job? I think we skipped over that. Jeff, I wasn't, I, I got out of school. I was just like you. I was right. They didn't think they called them analysts back then, but whatever they call yeah. them. Right. And I quickly moved into an internal sales role because I was just like, I, I love what those guys are doing. You know, they're on the phone, they're talking to people. It's like the conversation's interesting. Uh, I want, I wanted to do that, you know, and, uh, and I did it and I was selling maybe, you know, the worst thing you could sell as a, as, as an internal oh, fixed annuities and, and, and then some variable annuities. Right. Um, and so my, my, my kind of career advanced that way to, to, you know, like, so think from 1989 to, to, to 2006 was kind of traditional investments, right? Stocks, bonds, cash, always on the wholesale side you know, through financial advisors to, to their clients. Uh, and loved it. I loved every minute of, of, of what I did. And in 2006 uh, is when I moved to the dark side of alternatives <laughs> and, um, and, and, and ran a business that uh, sold uh, all same, same model, same distribution model. So got to build, um, got to build a team there. And um, what's interesting about that, and we talk about relationships, what's interesting about that is that my best salesperson at that role and from 2006 to 2014 now runs my sales business at Stepstone Private Wealth, That's cool. um, and uh, yeah, he's he's come with me, and he's by the way <clears throat> the best, regardless of what Tom says. So my career advanced that way. So I went from from being an internal wholesaler to an external wholesaler. Then I went on to being like a regional manager and a national sales manager, then head of distribution. And I, so 2006 on, I've run business, you know, distribution right. businesses for all size companies, big, small, and um, and now big again. Yep. Um, and this one's global, which makes it different. Yeah, so I want to back it up just a little bit. Typically, you don't go too into the weeds on a financial topic, but um, I want to get your opinion as to what you think a true alternative is, because right now it's really just a catch-all for anything that's not a stock or a bond. Um, so give me your opinion, one of you, either of you, as to what you think a true alternative is. Yeah, you know, I would I would say the way we think about alternatives, we we use alternatives and private markets sometimes largely interchangeably, mm -hmm. but we think about alternatives as one of four major asset classes within the private markets business. And it starts with private equity, broadly defined private equity, which goes from 
early stage venture capital to large cap buyout, all sorts in, in between. So private equity is the first. Infrastructure, all things infrastructure. It could be toll roads, airports, ports, telecom, uh, cell towers, transitional renewables, energy, yeah, that sort of thing. The third asset class would be traditional real estate, private real estate, uh, not public REITs, but but private real estate uh, typically. And it could be a private REIT structure or uh, direct real estate, which also could include real estate credit. And then the fourth is private credit. Uh, and private credit today could be a BDC structure, could be uh, some other form, could be an interval fund, but private credit uh, not to be differentiated with uh, uh, or confused with 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 public uh, credit. Those four asset classes are how we think about uh, alternatives or private markets. Some will throw in commodities or head, you know, certain kinds of hedge funds and mm-hmm. and and that sort of thing. We generally don't go there. We we focus on sort of the four major asset classes of private markets. And just to expand upon that, I think I think correlation becomes an important factor in when you're talking about alternatives, mm-hmm. right? So. So, so not necessarily, it doesn't have to be non-correlated, right? But, it, but less correlated to the public market. So, so think about, you know, the, the times of, of high stress in the public markets, private markets generally outperform dramatically, in fact. So that correlation factor, you know, it, it, it's, it, it, it's not following the herd. Uh, it's just kind of doing its own thing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that, that's really, I think it actually provides a great experience for the investor. Well, I think the, the, past year is really a, a true testament to that where equity markets and fixed income markets kind of moved in tandem with each other. And the conservative investor who was in a traditional portfolio, didn't have alternative investments, really felt a lot of the downside. And it was an uncomfortable experience. And so I guess the next question, and again, this is really foundational, is and most people aren't familiar with your segment of finance, but what would you say are some of the, the strengths and some of the drawbacks of investing in alternative investments or private markets? So I'll, I'll jump in and I know Neil will have some comments, but I, I feel compelled in answering that question to say that often times we'll speak <clears throat> with financial advisors or, or firms that, or we'll listen. We, we went to a luncheon a month ago and listened to a, a very sophisticated platform and a chief economist talking about the 60-40 portfolio, mm-hmm. stocks and bonds. And we raised our hand and said, can, can you remind us when 60-40 was designed and implemented? And he was, you know, thinking and <laughs> said, I don't know, maybe 50 years ago, we said like, before the advent of private equity, before private credit was created as an asset class, before infrastructure even existed, it's like, why would you call it 60-40 as, a, as an option unless you're going to like use an abacus instead of a computer or a calculator? You know, it's, it's <laughs> sort of, it, it's so outdated in our, in our opinion and the, and the size and scope of the private markets relative to the public markets is so substantially larger that to to exclude the entire private markets from your asset class allocation to us is such a fundamental mistake uh, that investors are, are really um, well, sort of missing the whole market. Well, that's, that, that's exactly it, right? So, so the challenge with what we see on what investors see, because we know what you know, but what investors see on TV represents about 10% of the U.S. economy, right? 90% of the U.S. economy is private companies, mm-hmm. right? So if you're not investing in private companies, you're missing out on the largest segment of the U.S. economy. And and listen, frankly, most people don't know even, to your point, don't understand what we do, mm-hmm. right? Um, and, and yet it's like the biggest driver of our, our economy. It's the biggest driver of the innovation in our economy is, is private equity. Um, so not tapping into that, um, I mean, limits your investment options dramatically. Yeah. And the 60-40 is used as the, the benchmark for comparison, at least in most publications. Why is it, in your opinion, is it accessibility as to why private markets or private investments aren't used in comparison? Great question. I, I think part of it is lack of education and understanding. Uh, there, there's a lot of people that say, you know, I've never 
invested in private equity. I, I, I don't really understand it. I'll kind of stick to what I know. It's sort of easier. I think the whole lack of of understanding and education on on the asset class. I think secondly, and and this is a criticism of of the private markets. Until very recently, the last handful of years, the nature and quality and caliber of the investment offerings in the private markets were were suboptimal. They were oftentimes not institutional quality sponsors, they might have uh, had misaligned fees where the sponsors, you know, sort of heads I win, tails you lose kind of kind of thing in, in terms of structure. All of that, we knew that was going to change when we started our business, that the rate of, of that change has accelerated dramatically. And it, it is, it, it's led to a, a very significant accelerating growth in, in, in this asset class for sure. Yeah, I want I want to come I want to expand on that but yeah. I want to come back to, to a point yeah. um but so so this this idea that we talk about the the democratization right? right I don't think we're democratizing alternatives I think we're institutionalizing retail alternatives right, right? and retail is a bad term too right because <laughs> you know high net worth investors are not retail investors mm-hmm. but in the institutional world that's how they reply to them right They're, they so we're we're institutionalizing to Tom's point the, the sponsors that are now providing alternatives for high net worth investors are, are, are some of the best sponsors in the world. It, it's changed in, in that sense that the access is being provided by higher quality uh, uh, managers delivering higher quality product at the right pricing for the retail investor. So, so, so that's a good thing. For, for everyone, frankly. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's essentially what you guys started your business on, right? Is that growing popularity and alternatives uh, coupled with trying to make them more accessible. So can you speak on that a little bit? No, 100%. So, so let's go back to what you, you originally asked, Mitchell, which was, so so why aren't more retail investors invested in alts, right? And accessibility was, was a big one, right? So very hard to get. Uh, the opaqueness of alternative investments, it's investing in a blind pool, Right. And especially mm-hmm. in private equity. Like, what am I investing in? I'm going to give you capital calls. Right. So I, I'm going to commit a million dollars to private equity. And I don't know when they're going to call the capital. So I got to leave it in cash. Well, why would I want to do that? Right. Um, K1s. Right. A K1 a one. <laughs> in every state in which you buy a company that comes in October. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it's extension, 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 extension. So until we, we, we solve for those problems, it was going to be very hard for the retail investor to access private markets, right? And and what we set off to do was solve every one of those problems, right? Is to is to make the experience. Remember, I said convenient, efficient, and transparent. Make private markets accessible to high net worth retail investors um, in a way that they can they can access it when they want access. I would add two more to to what Neil just said is diversification. The mm. products that historically had been available not only had all those features, but it was a single sponsor. Mm-hmm. It was a single strategy. Right. It was a single vintage year fund. It might've had a dozen companies or something in it, but it was not diversified in any respect. You could have a great sponsor, but it had a bad vintage year, or you had a good vintage year, but not a great sponsor. Mm-hmm. So you didn't have the benefit of diversification. We wanted to add really broad diversification across the the private markets. And then the other thing we really were committed to and still are committed to is open architecture. The whole concept that Mm. somebody who is really, really good at buying U.S.-focused middle market healthcare companies, given all the transition going on in healthcare, may not be the same people you want to invest with to buy apartments, you know, right. or to buy exactly. a, a European yep. uh, mid cap buyout or a venture. So you, you want to invest with sponsors in their sweet spot, in their power alley, and combine that with investments with other sponsors in their power alley. And that's how you're going to find alpha and with broad diversification across the portfolio. Here's the pushback I get from a lot of clients. Uh, who are individual investors, we'll call them retail investors, and they feel like 
by being an individual investing in private deals, they are simply getting the institutional leftovers, right? Companies only need to raise so much capital and they feel that the institutions utilize all that capital and they're getting all of the leftovers that the institutions do not want. That, that is that is actually uh, 100% a legitimate concern. And it's it's it actually is, is a concern spoken by more perceptive investors. When we set up our business, we dealt with that from the get-go. And we have, uh, in, in the products that we offer, we have a sort of a, it's called exemptive relief from the SEC. Every investment that we make across our entire global footprint, where the investment fits the investment strategy of our fund, our funds get to raise their hand and say, we want in or we don't want in, but there's no adverse selection at all whatsoever. And if we want in a fund, we invest side by side with the largest institutional investors in the world on identically the same economic terms that they invest. Mm -hmm. There is absolutely no way for individual investors in our firm Mm -hmm. to be disadvantaged or to get the leftovers or in any way have deal selection sort of result in an adverse selection where the best deals uh, go to institutions. Mm-hmm. Right. That's not, that that is impossible in how we've set up that's our a business. great point. Yeah, I think that's going to be a huge relief to individual investors who are interested in investing in private markets because I know it's a, a huge concern of theirs, but um, we could continue to pepper you guys with questions on this. Yeah, we could literally talk about this all day. So, so can we. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, so I think a lot of clients, prospects, family, friends are, incredibly interested in this segment of investing, but it just seems so inaccessible to them. It's foreign. There's a lot of terminology. It doesn't always make sense. So I really want to move into the the innovation portion of the conversation and talk about how, since you all have been in the industry, right? You've been in here multiple decades in private markets and alternative investments. How has the in, the industry innovated itself over time? I think it's what we said earlier, right? Which is we've seen this kind of institutionalization of the market. Mm-hmm. All of the right things have happened, um, which which is, again, I, as, as I said, it's good news for the industry, which is fees have come way down, right? And we've been in this business long enough to, to you know, where the sale used to be, you know, 7% to you, 7% to your client. You know how many how many kits do you want, right? Um, well, you can't <laughs> yeah. pay commissions of seven percent and expect to deliver returns to the investor, mm-hmm. right? So fees have come way down. Commissions are almost gone, right? Not the, that your business is one hundred percent fee based. You work on the side of your client, right? And 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 the business has gone that way, right? One hundred percent, a hundred times better than what it used to be for the investor experience, right? The information, the education, um, is is dramatically better than it's ever been, right? There's more, well, first of all, people have more access to information than they've ever had, e- even on the private markets, right? I mean, let's think about the headlines we see every day. But um, I think the information that that people have um, to, to do research, even on private markets, is, is tremendously um, grown in, in a way that's very positive for them as well. So we, we want, I mean, the, 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 the easy, answer for us is we want educated investors because if they understand it, uh, they're going to stay in it. They're going to buy more, right? So we're going to help them understand. If you look back at the sponsors that were in this space offering private market products 10 or 15 years ago, and then you look at these sponsors today, those sponsors don't even show up in the top 25 in terms of market share. The list of sponsors today are, are the who's who of the best platforms that invest in private markets. So that's a, a complete sea change. So as Neil pointed out, we're, we've not only seen a dramatic improvement of the nature and quality of the offerings and the structure and the, the, the user interface and the sort of the client-friendly structure, you've seen much better sponsors and product offerings. The other thing I would say is there's, there's a general lack of understanding. People think of private companies and they think of startups or they think of smaller mm-hmm. companies. Right. It's a classic venture capital. Right. Yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's a high risk kind of deal. We do business with, we invest in private companies that have, that are billions of dollars in size that have hundreds of millions of dollars in, in annual sales. 
if you look at the growth rate of a lot of the private companies that we invest in, it is substantially in excess of the average growth rate of even the fastest growing public companies. Because many companies used to 10, 15 years ago, they would raise private capital and then they would go public maybe when they were 100 million or 500 million right. in, in size. Today, you look at it, an Uber was, is one that we always use. They stayed private with massive rapid growth and went public at almost a $50 billion value. So many private companies are staying private for years and years longer than they used to with dramatic growth and value to the, the, uh, the stage investors and then when growth is leveling off, then they go public. Yeah. I mean, the simple soundbite, right? I mean, the, the access to cash for those companies has, has grown dramatically while they're private. So the value creation for the investor happens while the, while the company is, mm -hmm. is private, right? right? I mean, and, and you go back to Microsoft. Microsoft was only private for 18 months and then mm -hmm. went public, right? So, so, so the change has been all of the value creation for the investor came after they went public. How much more can Uber grow, <laughs> right? I mean, or Grubhub, pick one. Right. These, these, you know, right. crazy name companies that um, that that uh, are, are worth billions and billions of dollars, and they go they go public. And I mean, how much more can they go up? So I think this is something uh, you guys are doing well in your business that I wanted to touch on. I think as a younger guy working in alternatives uh, for so long in my younger career at first, you know, I was all about democratizing alternatives, getting more access to more people and bringing that further and further down, you know, the food chain, so to speak. But I think, you know, as I've gotten older and seen more examples, it's kind of come full circle for me with the need, you know, to have those certain protections in place around liquidity um, and what that looks like for investors being more sophisticated and that kind of language. Uh, and so I think you guys do a great job of kind of that middle ground there. So speak on that a little bit and what that looks like for investors uh, as far as that accessibility. Well, look, the early, the early vintage of this 10 years ago, there was zero liquidity. Somebody would invest and it could be six, eight, 10, 12 years. There was no liquidity whatsoever. If then when you started to have the opportunity to invest in a to a what we call a drawdown fund where you're having high minimums, single strategy, single sponsor, single vintage year, no liquidity in those products either, but they were not sold with any liquidity. They was sort of like your money is locked up. It could be six years. It could be eight years. It could be 15 years. You, you don't know. The products that we're now offering have what we call semi-liquid or limited liquidity, right. typically limited to somewhere between 10 and 20% of the aggregate NAV of the fund, net asset value of the fund, annually. And we'll offer that quarterly. So if it's 20% a year, it's 5% per quarter. And we always say these are longer-term investments. You would not invest in the stock market prudently and put a bunch of your money in if you think that you're going to need the money in six months or a year. Or eight. Mm -hmm. nobody would right. nobody would advise you to to do <clears> that. <throat> and you shouldn't invest in the private markets with that mindset. We always say these are longer term investments, three, five, seven year investments. But nevertheless, if you want liquidity or need liquidity, you have that option in our products at the net asset value, not at a massive discount, at the net asset value. So it, it is, you should not invest in these assuming that it's a money market where you can punch in and punch right. out, but you wouldn't invest in the public markets right. in equity with that mindset either, unless you expect to get burned. Yeah. We've had clients worried about that where they're like, what if I need, you know, liquidity and I'm in private markets? It's like, well, it's a small piece of the portfolio. If we need liquidity from that piece of the portfolio, we have much broader issues right issues. right well 100 <laughs> yeah you know listen in it, it like anything there's risk in any investment right and i don't want to sound like the compliance guy but but it's true right i mean it's just it's the reality of, of the world that we, we we live in you said something earlier mitchell that that i 
been thinking about and what you said, you know, we were talking about the 60, 40 portfolio and you said, well, conservative investors probably don't want to invest in alternatives. I think that's flipped upside down. I think the conservative investor needs more access to alternative investments because it, they can't handle the volatility in the public markets, right? And if you're only invested in the public markets and you said it, right? Stocks and bonds have been correlated to one another. By the way, it hasn't been just the last year. It's been since like 1994, um, right? Which is the last time we had, well, bonds are down now, but the last time we really had a bond issue, which only lasted for like six months, right? In, in 94. Um, I got to ask the old guy cause he remembers more <laughs> than I do, but, uh, um, but, um, um, but having alternatives in your portfolio that are non-correlated to the public markets, I'm not saying you don't need the public markets. You absolutely have to have an allocation of the public markets, but the 60, 40 portfolio is still works. It depends on what you allocate to, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? So it's, it, it should be stocks, bonds, and alts, um, uh, where it used to be and cash, right? Um, but, um, but I think the, the, the addition of high quality alternative investments to a diversified private market, a public markets portfolio lowers the risk and increases the return and smooths the the volatility line. And and I think that's lost. I think that's lost in regulation. So that's kind of what I was getting at there. I think we can talk about alternatives all day. We're clearly all very passionate about that. Uh, but getting more back to the personal side, uh, this is very, much a niche industry in the investing world, at least. Um, and, you know, we've touched on this a bit, but what made you guys so passionate about this industry enough to kind of stake both your careers on it? So I was in, I, was, I think I was telling you guys I was in Greece the last week, right? Mm-hmm. And about with like three days left in my vacation, I was texting Tom, calling Tom. He's like, I thought you were on vacation. I'm like, I, I got to get back in the game, man. I can't. <laughs> we, we love it. I mean, we love it. We live it. We live it every day. We love being there. We love, we have the, you know, we love being in our office. We love the people we work with. Um, we love helping you guys, right? We love being, you know, being a solution. And uh, I, maybe I'm speaking for me, um, but, 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 but we get up every day, man, fired up about what we do and, and, and trying to find ways to improve the experience um, for the investor, right? We, we started this business, like I said earlier, with the investor in mind, right? And we're unlike, some, you know, the way the business used to be around, which was, it's okay, we're a sponsor. We're, we're good at this. We're going to build a fund and convince right. everyone they should invest in that fund. We started with, what does the investor need? Right? How do we make it easy for the investor to have access to these funds? And, and, and you know, it's, it's in our core values, man. This is what we do every day, right? It's our mission. And um, it's something we're, we're obviously very passionate about. The, the blessing that we have, and it, private markets maybe are not for everybody for a career, but the blessing we have is we love what we do. We love who we're doing it with. And when you have that and and it's aligned with sort of your passion and your gift mix, it's, it's kind of not work. I, you know, it, it's like, we all, we joke all the time that we're excited to go to the office. We have fun in the office. We, you know, we laugh, we get, I mean, we have a very high intensity in terms of our, our, our work culture. But we 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 want to we want to have fun, but we want to get a lot accomplished, and um, we have a very high standard that we set first for ourselves, and and then for sort of our expectation for for our company, and for us it happens to be in the private markets. Mm-hmm. Other people can can you know work on cars or other you know, but if if you're able to match your passion with your skill set and with a group of people that you have deep respect for. And admiration uh, in a high integrity, sort of high performance culture. It's like that's just that's that's everybody's dream for a, a work situation. I think that's a good segue into kind of what our passion is here on this podcast, right? The intro we talk about how we we meet people at the intersection of innovation, finance, community. We talked a lot about finance. We talked a ton about innovation. So I want to move into the community aspect and talk about how, you know, Tom being from Chicago, Neil being from Rhode Island, both of you having very finance centric career paths that typically lead you to Northeast, but you both settled down in central Florida's and you central Florida and you built your, your families here. So tell me what you love about central Florida, what makes central Florida so appealing to the both of you. I, I moved here in 2000 initially 
or maybe it was late 99 initially with, with my family for a job, mm-hmm. right? I, I was working for a company that moved me here and in, 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 into the central Florida. And then, by the way, we could have lived anywhere. We moved here initially because uh, my wife's best friend from Massachusetts high school uh, was in uh, Maitland, Florida. So really? <laughs> yeah, I was going to be on the road four days a week. So I figured if I plug my wife and my three-year-old in next door to her best friend and, and their four-year-old, <laughs> Pretty good move, right? and it turned out to be a great move. Yeah, good strategy. Yeah, it was, yeah, yeah. I'm smarter than I look. Um, <laughs> but but anyway, um, uh, we left, right? So we were here for six years the first time. We left, and um, and in 2013 went through a financial planning process, believe it or not, and uh, together. And where we were separated, we had to like do our own goals and then bring them together. Yep. Yep. And we both wanted to live in Central Florida, uh, and weren't talking about it. Interesting. Assumed she was happy. She assumed I was happy and uh, living in, in, in Maryland. And uh, and we were, by the way. It, it's a great place to live. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, but really wanted to be here, raise our kids here. And 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 frankly, I'd tell you um when it came to to moving back and, and why we wanted to it was really my son. My daughter was a senior in high school when we moved back. But my son was it's just to plug him into the values. Uh, of the people that we knew in in Central Florida, right, and and the school he went to was values based, and 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 really, you know, the the that respect element, um, I think, is lost in places, and um, and mm-hmm. we really that was really important to us uh, that he be plugged into people who were, you know, where he where respect was demanded mm-hmm. um, and expected of them, and um, and there were no excuses. Uh, so we, we really, so we moved back here, you know, like I said, I, I wasn't, wasn't for a job. Um, just moved back because this is where, this is the part of the world we wanted to live in um, and, and plug in the community we wanted to plug into. Yeah. I didn't know about that gap. I think that's the, the most telling thing to me is that there was a period of time where you left and then came back. Oh yeah. Six um, years. Um, yeah. No, it was, we were gone for almost nine years uh, and came back. Uh, like I said, just really um, for the, for really the, uh, call it lifestyle makes it sound like you know whatever right. but but for the lifestyle right. i mean yeah. it really is for the lifestyle and tom you were in cool. chicago texas and then charlotte and then charlotte and then you made your way back to central florida so i i came down uh maybe a little bit different story than neil's same ultimate uh, uh ending so i moved down here for a job i remember my wife specifically saying look i think I think you're going to love what you do there. And I think we're going to tolerate living in central Florida. And I go, Sweetheart, I, say that. <laughs> I hope, I hope it's way more than, than tolerating, but there's a, um, there's a, I, I think a, a misperception about central Florida uh, and particularly Orlando as a tourist city and maybe an older population and hot and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Well, we had lived in a lot of other places the weather here is better than any of the places we, we've lived. The caliber of the people, Winter Park, where we live, is a gem on the whole East Coast that is not very uh, well understood. We've been here 13 years. Maybe this is the most important uh, statement I can make. I have three kids I mentioned. They're all married. They've grown up. I have my 12th grandchild on the way. I have 11 grandkids, and they live in the Carolinas, and and we're not moving back anytime soon, uh, probably never. Uh, and and so we, we spend a lot of time traveling mm-hmm. to go see them, and they come down here. In fact, my uh, youngest daughter and her family are coming down uh, tomorrow uh, to spend a week at the beach uh, with us and so forth. But we love this community uh, and all the things we've, we've talked about. Now, it is a really special place. Neil touched on sort of the values-based. Um, it, it, it's just, there's just a, 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 a genuine respect for uh, the individual. There is, now I'm a faith-based guy. There's there's plenty of opportunities uh, for, for that. It, it permeates uh, a lot of the culture uh, here. The, the business community in Central Florida is just a really, really special place. Um, it, it, it's it's um, it's 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 home. So we've talked a lot about Orlando, but Tom, I wanted to talk more about one of the bigger projects you you started and co-founded, which was Lift Orlando. So so tell us about that because I think it's been massive for the Central Florida community. 
Well, I, I could talk about that for a long time. Plenty of time. <laughs> so Lift Orlando is uh, an effort. It's a nonprofit started about 10 years ago here in Central Florida that focuses on really making hopefully permanent transformation in the lowest income zip code in Central Florida. And it, it that particular zip code is just outside of downtown Orlando, and it surrounds the area uh, that the Florida uh, Citrus Bowl Camping World Stadium occupies. And it's a uh, we focused on about a one square mile area directly around the stadium. And it started with me driving uh, to the stadium to go to a game, having been in Orlando just two years mm. and having not been to that side of town. And I, I was just awestruck at how deep the poverty level was. And my wife and I were just amazed. And we started thinking children that grow up in that community have no shot. I mean, how do they have a shot? And we started thinking about sort of the, the conundrums. It's sort of like this is, you know, the city beautiful, we, we call it. This is the happiest place on earth with Disney and Universal and so forth. And then you see that and you just say, wow, this is just a living contradiction. So we just committed being relatively new to the community. We just committed to sort of studying it and learning it and asking questions. And I'm sort of an instigator and I like to ask questions. And it's like, how, how long has this been like this? And what efforts have been been done to sort of reverse this and you realize that you know as an equal opportunity offender i came across sort of two two sort of typical responses you know one is hey we just don't have enough money you know big government is the solution and then you study it and say 50 years war on poverty 10 trillion dollars expended and areas of generational concentrated poverty are worse today than they were 50 years ago. And you say, okay, well, that can't be the answer. The other side is, you know, these kids, these people just need to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps, like I did. And you go, okay, well, what if they've never seen a mentor? They've never had a role model. They've seen um, families here for generations have not seen a parent get up and maybe and go to work or or what have you, and you go and 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 they go to failing schools or how about this statistic? You know, it's it's traumatic for most parents to move their kids to a different school. You know, you think about that. Right. You know, that's that's difficult. That's difficult. How about if you had to move your kids to a different school every year, and you go? Or how, how could that possibly be good and healthy for your ability to learn and grow and be you know, socially um, a, a, a adapting? So we, we just started asking questions and doing research. And, um, and we, we did that for about a year and a half, started assembling a, a group of people that were like-minded, that had a conviction to do something different. And it led to the formation of what is called LIFT Orlando. LIFT stands for Learn, Identify, Focus, and Transform. That's how we named it. And so we built an organization. I, I have am privileged to have been the board chair since the formation of the organization. We have an awesome staff and an all-world board, and we've been blessed with some really pretty amazing uh, success stories along the way. But, but if you think about uh, uh, this story, right? So t Tom's vision was, we're going to spend, how much money did they spend renovating the stadium? $200 million. Yeah, so right. $200 million renovating the stadium. So if you look at stadiums around the world, like when that happens, the neighborhoods around get gentrified, mm -hmm. the stadiums, right? Mm -hmm. and, and I think this is exactly what you were fighting against. Like, like, so we're going to spend $200 million renovating this stadium to attract revenue and tourism dollars to football games. What about these people? Mm -hmm. You know, and, and, and I think that's just brilliant. You know, as someone who grew up here um, and seeing that neighborhood over time, 
it's cool to see some some people who aren't even from here and take so much passion and pride in you know revitalizing and changing Central Florida and this community for the better. But I, I, Jeff, I think it's such a good point. What I didn't appreciate then, and I've come to appreciate it more, is the fact that we're not from here actually gave us a massive advantage. When I started talking to different people about this, the response that we got was, Tom, it it's kind of always been that way, and I just assumed it always would be that way. And mm -hmm. we sit back and say, but that's just not acceptable. I, you know, we can do better than that. I always think we, we have an opportunity today to live in the greatest country, maybe in the history of the world, at this most fascinating time in the history of the world with the, the greatest prosperity and liberties and freedom, and then to, to see entire communities that send their kids to failing schools have no housing options, no ability to get a job or job training, and oh, by the way, have a longevity of life that might be 15 years less in certain zip codes than the adjacent zip codes. And you go, really? That's the best we can do? Mm. I don't think so. Let's, let's figure out how we can fix this. And so we just started gathering people. We had, by the way, we had big ideas. None of them were founded in, in experience or, you know, we just started asking a lot of questions, reading books. I think we went to 13 or 14 cities when we heard certain projects or certain initiatives or efforts were underway just to learn, see what's worked in other places um, and brought that back and, and just started really entrepreneurially tackling sort of the problem, focusing on a, on a vision and a business plan, uh, ac accountability for results, not just throwing money after a problem, but really drive a sense of urgency is probably one of the greatest uh, sort of character characteristics of the effort is excellence and urgency. You know, we, we say all the time, hey, every month that we don't get things done is another month that kids are going to failing schools mm -hmm. or somebody is living in a car because they don't have affordable housing uh, or they're, they're having sort of um, no access to sufficient health care. So we have this passion that we can't move fast enough, mm -hmm. but, but we have to do whatever we do with absolute excellence, with a mindset that anything we do there has got to be of the same caliber and quality that we would expect for our own family. That's sort of how we think. Yeah, about I love it. that. I think, you know, we could talk about this all day as far as Lyft Orlando is concerned and would love to have you come back, bring Eddie on and really dive more into Lyft Orlando and the impact it has. Do a whole nother episode. Well, I, 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 I'm so grateful for your interest. I, I will say maybe um, another, it, it could be the most important characteristic is the people that are, leading Lyft Orlando are all business women and businessmen. We don't have politicians. We actually don't have a bunch of nonprofit people. It They're business leaders. And the interesting thing is, is they're business leaders that are leveraging their core competency, their passion, and what they do in their day job, which mm -hmm. is problem solving, vision casting, accountability for results, whether they're a lawyer, whether they're a real estate developer, whether they're, they, they have a marketing bent or a sales orientation, whether they're a strategist, whatever it is, a, a CPA, we have pulled people together in their power alleys, if you will, in their core competencies. And we're, we then work together to sort of drive this agenda. And I, and that can happen in every community in America. So for anyone who wasn't familiar with Lyft Orlando prior to this episode, how can they get involved? So I, look, I, I, I'm the, like, the <clears throat> last guy that you would think could do this. I wasn't even from this area. I grew up in the south side of Chicago. It's like, you know, I would be the last guy that somebody would, would think could sort of pull this together. Mm -hmm. But I, I just am one of these guys where if you see a problem, 
you know, I just need to fix it. I, you know, you just need to do something about it. And most of the time it's just assembling like-minded people who have a conviction that we can do better. And, and then sort of a curiosity to say, so what do we do? How, how do we do it? And, and just in, invest the time. Look, I, I think at the end of the day, we, Neil and I are so blessed. We, we get to work together. We love working together. We love what we do. We love who we do it with. We've had some success in our careers. But at the end of the day, with that success creates a burden of responsibility. Mm. It's not all about just making money. I, you know, I'm a pure capitalist at heart. Neil and we talk about this all the time. We are capitalists. But, you know, capitalists, you can sort of be imbalanced if it's all about just making money. Right. That That is completely unacceptable to us. Our, our mindset is we have a burden of responsibility to make the community that we live in a better place. Whatever that might be. It might be in the arts. It might be in youth sports. For, for me, you know, my passion has largely been inner city trying to create opportunities for these kids to go to a better school, to have access to better nutrition and healthcare, to have mentors and role models and, and to, uh, and, and just have an opportunity to move into middle class. But it starts with a burden of responsibility to say much is expected from those to whom much has been given. We've been blessed. You know, a friend of mine used to say, we can't just be a catcher's mitt, you know, mm -hmm. where, it, you know, we're just catching all these great opportunities. Sometimes you, you got to give back. And, and, and well, we've made it one of our core values, yeah. right? You have to be purposeful, not only in your work, but in your community. And, and we believe that really strongly that you, we are blessed. You got to give back. Right. And, and it's very fulfilling to give back. Right. To us, it's, it's part of our everyday core values of our company. Yep. So I love that. I think you guys have done a great job hitting on a lot of this so far, but as we kind of wrap up, you know, clearly you're two guys that are very clear on what your values are, uh, what you're passionate about career wise. So on that note, what are, you know, some advice you would give, some guys in our boat, you know, late 20s, early 30s, I'm sure you'd be the first to admit that you've made some mistakes along the way, but how do you get to where you're going with this? You seem to have it pretty figured out. We make mistakes every day. <laughs> <laughs> Still, uh, every day. Uh, I, I would say, you know, so um, we talked a little bit about this earlier, but, but, you know, conviction is one thing. I think being a student of the business, right? I think understanding the business I think when I really, the light bulb came on for me was kind of my kind of mid thirties. Um, when, when I have, he's still a mentor of mine. He's still a guy when I have these kind of things in my head that I can't get out that I call and say, okay, dude, how do I figure this out? You know? And he never gives me the answer. Um, but, but he said to me, um, like you, you understand the business from our side of it. You need to now understand it from the, your client's side of it study the client, study what the client does, understand the client's business. Um, and, and that, that goes for any industry, by the way, not right. just this one. That's right. Um, but if you know, you know, it's like a Sun Tzu, right? If you know your enemy, like, you know, yourself, you can attack. Um, well, if you know your client's business, the way, you know, your own, it just makes it a lot easier to, to be able to be impactful on their business. So that's my advice. I love that. I, I would, I would say on, on maybe this, the, the non-business side, just a, a, a couple of reactions to your question, Jeff. One, to a, a younger person, look out, you know, sort of raise your head and look out to see men and women who you deeply respect. You respect their integrity. You respect the way they approach problem solving. They may be in your company. They may not be in your company. And, and don't be shy to ask if they can mentor you. Neil just mentioned, mentioned his mentor. When I look back, I, have, I had mentors throughout my life. I, didn't, I wasn't intentional about it when I was younger, uh, but I look back and realize today that it was mission critical for me for my own personal growth. The other thing I would say is, at the at the end of the day, you want to you want to answer a question. What does success 
for you look like? Some people, success is just having a bunch of material things, cars, nice houses, you know, sort of what have you. I will tell you right now, if that's what success looks like to you, you might achieve it and you will find it completely unfulfilling. At the end of the day, and there's been research upon research on this. So I'm now talking in your question to a younger generation. At the end of the day, what will bring you the most happiness, the greatest health and fulfillment is relationships. Relationships at work, relationships outside of work. If you are running through life hard and you're not investing in deep lasting relationships, you're going to find yourself wanting, you know, when 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 you get to be much older. I, I think the relationships piece, in fact, there was a study that just came out at Harvard where they, they studied relationships uh, over three generations, thousands of people. And, and that was the, the biggest takeaway. The happiest, most fulfilled, most contented people were those that did not necessarily have the most money. They were the ones that had the deepest relationships. Love it. <laughs> Gentlemen, I can't thank you guys enough for, for coming on the podcast. It's so much fun. Thank you. Yeah. We appreciate the insights and in, in everything you've done for the Central Florida and the Orlando communities. Uh, just a huge thank you from us. Oh, awesome. What awesome. a great opportunity for yeah. us to share our story. Thanks for having the interest. Absolutely. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys.